Then I'm going to let you give your credentials, and I hope you will share with us uh, how you came to be doing what you're doing. But please help me welcome Ben Riggs. So when we initially started talking about me coming and speaking this weekend, I'd, it never hit me until I was sitting in the pew a minute ago. I think I speak here every year on World Religion Day. Um, and I don't know if it's the World Religion Day or if it's the weekend following Martin Luther King Jr. Day um, or if it's just coincidence. Uh, but if you go and look at my altar... There are three books on the center of my altar where I pray. Uh, one is A Song for the King, which is a book written by an uh, Indian saint named Saraha. Um, the other one is The Cloud of the Unknowing, which is a 14th century text by an anonymous Christian mystic um, on contemplative prayer. And then the third one is Martin Luther King Jr.'s autobiography. So, you know, I, I, I've in the past when I've been invited to speak on World Religion Day, I've always had it in my head as post-Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I've always thought that, you know, the person the week before spoke on social justice or something in relationship to Dr. King's legacy. And so I've always backed off of that, but I've always sort of wanted to talk along those lines. And so when we first started talking about me coming and speaking this weekend, um, I, I think I said they asked me what topic I'd like to speak on and I reluctantly sent back some email like um, something to do with discipline or weed in the garden and it was going to be some sort of um, uh, interpretation of Genesis 2 or 3 where he talks about um, taking care of the garden that he's placed them in and the garden being our daily life and blah, blah, blah. Um, but this time, I, after I sent that email, I thought about it and I said, no, I want, to, I want to talk about Dr. King and his legacy and how it pours into what I would consider contemplative spirituality. So I sent another email back, I think it was just last week, or maybe early this week, and asked if I could change my topic. Um, and here we are. And so, um, and to be honest, on such short notice, because I don't think I sent the email until Tuesday or so, um, uh, Barbara, you put together a service that just, you know, the order of service really plays into everything that I wanted to say. So that, 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 really, that really is nice. Um, all the way to the, 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 the call and response part, uh, the, you know, the, the first quote that popped into my mind when I thought about speaking today was on the back of the Refuge Meditation Group business cards is the Leo Tolstoy quote, um, everyone thinks about changing the world, but no one thinks about changing themselves. Um, and so th that was real heavy on my mind when I started to sort of prepare my remarks for this morning. And, you know, to be honest with you, um, as far as my credentials are concerned um, or, you know, how I came to be doing what it is that I am doing, uh, I, I think that it's, uh, um, you know, I've been a lot of places and done a lot of things and had the opportunity to study with, you know, quite a few really amazing people. Um, and I would agree with Barbara's assessment of me. Um, and I think that that can be a positive thing and I also think it can be a negative thing. I think it can leave people sitting there thinking and questioning and wondering um, in a positive way. And I also think it can leave you sitting there thinking, what in the world is he talking about? When's it going to be over? Um, so, uh, and, and I do strive to be um, a little more um, 
heartfelt and not you know quite as heady. Um, unfortunately, that striving will not be shown in what I have to say this morning. <laughs> so I apologize in advance about that. Um, I I spent many a Sunday mornings in drawing dinosaurs and airplanes and rocket ships and whatnot on the back of offering envelopes at the Wascom Texas Baptist Church um, as a child, and I loved that church. Um, I used to sit on the church bus next to the same guy every Sunday morning. I think his name was Jimmy. He had Down syndrome, and Jimmy loved to sing. He, my, favorite, the, my favorite song that he would perform was that Bob Seard song, I Like That Old Timey Rock and Roll. And Jimmy would just get into it, and I loved it. I met my first girlfriend at that church. Uh, I remember running home one Sunday morning really excited about this giant step towards something that I had taken. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I was moving in the right direction. And so I ran home, and I was ready to you know, share this giant step with my family, only to be told, uh, we don't date black girls. And it's interesting to me that that's something I had to be taught. Dr. King once said that he believed that we had to rapidly begin the transition from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. That if we, you know, in a society where um, computers and profit and machines and property rights are more important than persons, that racism, militarism, and militarism would never be able to be conquered. And so, you know, we come into this world without any things. We come into this world only seeing people, and we're taught to see things. And so, what is a thing? In order to measure a curve, you have to install points along this crooked line and measure the distance between them. And it's just like that with things. Things are thoughts. They're fixed reference points that we install on this curve that is our life, that is our experience, so that we can measure our experience. Um, It's like Alan Watts cleverly pointed out. I mean, they're practically the same word. Alan Watts said that things are things. Uh, A thing is a concept. It's a label. It's an idea that we're placing on our experience so that we can develop some sort of idea as to what's going on so that we can value our experience, so to speak. Things in and of themselves aren't problematic. There's nothing wrong with things. It's our attachment to things that gives rise to problems. It's just like Dr. King alluded to in the quote, it's our orientation towards things that is of concern. It's not the things themselves. They're useful social conventions that enable us to share ideas with one another, um, to commune with one another. But it's our attachment to them that gives rise to problems. And if you have an attachment to things, and things are things, then what we're talking about is an addiction to thought. Essentially, we're caught in this situation where we're just thinking about our own thoughts. And we think about our own thoughts for so long that we lose touch with the surface we set out to measure. We disconnect ourselves from reality, and all we can see is what we think about things. We just start thinking about things way too much. The metric system that we're using to measure our experience. It's called the ego. It's how something affects me that I'm using to calculate the value of it. If somebody comes along and they affect me in a positive way, if they make me feel warm and bubbly on the inside, I'll consider them a friend. 
I, maybe even the love of my life. Who, you know, it's just one of these things that it's how you make me feel that determines the value I place on you. If you affect me in a negative way, then I'll consider you a friend, uh, an enemy, and start to develop animosity and resentment towards you. And even more interestingly, and part of the way you know that this is self-centered, is all the people that you've come into contact with throughout the course of your life that you can't even remember their name or their face or anything about them. And it's only because they failed to affect you in either a positive or a negative way. They don't pop up on our radar. We don't think about them. They're not things. You know, it's almost as if they don't exist. So it's the ego. It's what I think about myself that I'm using to determine the value and worth of everything I interact with. It is the ego that's the common denominator. I is the original thing. It's the original think, so to speak. This is what it means to be self-centered. When everything in the world revolves around me and the value and worth of everything in the world is calculated on the basis of how it affects me, this is self-centeredness. And self-centeredness is a really narrow, prejudiced mind. If something fails to reflect my image, if it doesn't look like me and sound like me, if it doesn't think like me or share the same opinions as me, if it fails to essentially validate what I think about myself, then I consider it evil or burdensome, menacing. It's in some shape, way, form, or fashion problematic. It's pointless. It doesn't measure up. It amounts to nothing. You see? And so... When we look at other people, we're not seeing people. We're just seeing things. We're just seeing what we think about them. We're seeing a conservative. We're seeing a liberal. We're seeing a white or a black or Christian or a Muslim. We're not seeing just who they are. We're not seeing who they are from their own side. And when people look at us, they're not seeing us either. They're seeing what they think about us. They're seeing their own thoughts. They're seeing the reflection of their own image. But just as I exist and you exist independent of what other people think about you, they exist not as things, but as people independent of what you think about them. You see? And even more interesting is in some sense, I exist, capital I, independent of what I, lowercase i, think about myself. And this is a type of inner freedom. And a lot of mystics refer to this inner freedom as silence. That outer freedom where you exist independent of what I think about you is called independence. And when applied, it's called democracy. But when we start to talk about it within the context of our inner lives and me existing independent of what I think about myself, it's silence, it's serenity, it's peace of mind, it's contentment, it's the ability to be comfortable in my own skin. In Buddhism, they talk a lot about emptiness, and they say that our basic nature is emptiness. And this causes a lot of problems for people who aren't that familiar with Buddhism, and particularly with the type of language that Buddhism uses. Emptiness is a strange word. To a Western mind, emptiness comes off almost as if you're saying, I'm a big pile of nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm not worth anything, or I don't actually exist, ends up being one of the ways in which it's interpreted. But that's not actually what it means. Emptiness is uh, actually a lot simpler than that. Basically, it means that I came into this world 
without a name. I came into this world without any things. And still this very moment, who and what I am actually exists in a nameless state. That who and what I actually am is nameless. It is thingless. I might get all wrapped up in what I think about myself. We might get all wrapped up in our titles, our attributes, our names. We might get all wrapped up in this uh, and sort of thinking about ourselves. And in doing so, we might actually thingify ourselves. We might actually come out of this thinking of ourselves as being a very solid, definite thing. And then go through life using that thing to measure the value and worth of other people. Whether or not they're willing to validate what we think about ourselves. But at the end of the day... If I'm willing to let go of all of that in a moment of silence and step beyond what I think about myself, then, and only then, will I be able to reconnect with that basic spark of humanity that animates us all. Essentially, in silence, we let go of everything that we think about ourselves and the world we live in. And we're able to reconnect with this basic sense of goodness, this basic personhood that's embedded in each and every one of our bodies. It's not something that we have to earn or work for. I don't have to please you or gain your approval in order to you know, reconnect with that. Furthermore, I don't have to do anything to gain my own approval or please myself. It's something that's self-existing and is available to me always. And once again, that's that state of silence. Well, just as that external state of freedom or independence, when applied, is called democracy, internally, when silence is applied or, you know, uh, the application, the practical application of silence is meditation practice. Meditation practice is actually a way to let go of what you think about things. It's a tool, it's a technique that enables you to let go of all these different ideas that you have about yourself and the world you live in. Essentially, meditation practice brings you back into that state that precedes a sense of self. It brings you back into that silence. And in that silence, there is no my happiness and your suffering. There is no my wealth and your poverty. There's no my freedom and your incarceration. You actually do, through meditation practice, come to realize firsthand exactly what Dr. King meant when he said injustice anywhere is a threat to uh, justice everywhere. Meditation practice, spiritual practice, a willingness to work on yourself and to first take the plank out of your eye before you start to worry about other people changes the world because meditation practice, spiritual practice, it brings you to a point where you can actually realize compassion and come to embody compassion. And compassion changes the world. You know, and, and I think from that point of view, St. Paul can rightfully say it's not I that... It's not I that lives, but Christ within me. There's this sense of, it's not me that's changing the world. If I get caught up in this idea of me changing the world, of me getting out there and fixing everything, I'm sure to just get caught up in trying to reform the world in my own image and likeness. Whenever I move out of the way, there's a, there's a spontaneous power. I'm going to keep hitting that thing. There's a spontaneous power that begins to rise to the surface. And if I'm willing to stay out of the way, my life will become an incarnation of that power. My life will actually become the embodiment of that compassion. 
And that can have a drastic effect on the world we live in. And so I, I really do believe that before we do anything, we have to start any social justice programs or anything like that. Anything that we do has to start with ourselves. The, mo- my, the, the most mind-blowing thing I remember reading about Dr. King that I would never, never knew before was before he preached anywhere, that morning was spent with two hours in silent meditation. You know, um, very few people know that Dr. King practiced silent meditation. But, you know, towards the end of his life, he ended up uh, having a, a correspondence with Thomas Merton and wanted to go stay at the Abbey of Gethsemane and actually, um, you know, be instructed by somebody who had lived their life, you know, had lived a contemplative life. And so Dr. King understood the value of silence. And I hope that each and every one of you will consider the value of silence if you haven't already and really begin to invest in your own sense of sanity and well-being by, by being willing to bring that silence into your life and allow that silence to begin to change you. And then you'll begin to notice that your life is just changing the world around you without even thinking about it. In Buddhism, they call that Buddha, Buddha activity. It's spontaneous. There's no sense of self-consciousness about it. You've reconnected with that spark of compassion and it's just doing the work through you. So I thank you all for the opportunity to come and speak this morning and finally get my two cents in about Martin Luther King Jr. Um, And I hope you all have a great morning. Thank you.